0: I think everyone should be walking every single day because there's also so many benefits to getting outside, but you can also strength train. You can also do all these other things like cycling. You're not going to get a ton of steps when you're cycling, but it's still really good for you. So finding different ways to move that you actually enjoy, that you can actually stick with.
1: Welcome to the next Simple Step. I'm Paul Goldsmith. And today I'm so excited to talk to Dr. Lisa Mitro She's a physical therapist. Lisa, first, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into specializing in doing PT for runners?
0: Yes, basically, with the pandemic, you know, everything changed. So I started a running accountability Instagram and realized there was a really big gap in helping runners, treating runners, helping specifically injured runners. And there's a lot of really bad advice out there. (laughs) I mean, everyone thought they were an expert, which seems to be the case nowadays as well, but it was just awful advice. And it, it made me nervous as a PT because I was like, some people are really going to, they could injure themselves more. So I started posting things to help runners as I continued my running journey. And it just took off from there.
1: Okay. So tell us what is like the worst piece of advice or misconception that runners have that you are very quick to correct?
0: One is that your knees should not go over your toes. I would say that one is really big because that's how you run or (laughs) go down the stairs or, you know, very functional tasks. Another one would just be to just completely rest the injury and just lay in bed for a month and hope it goes away and then get back to running.
1: (laughs) Help me out with this one. So, another thing is if you do have an injury, The conventional wisdom has been to put ice on it.
0: Yeah. So that is kind of out the window nowadays as well. Research is really, really evolving. And they're saying that basically when there's some sort of tissue damage, the inflammatory cells come to the site of damage to help trigger healing and trigger that tissue repair. So if we're icing an injury and we're trying to get rid of inflammation, also taking like anti-inflammatory medicine, then we're not triggering healing like we should. So it actually can delay healing more. So that's why they're kind of going away with the ice, I guess, like the rice method.
1: This is fascinating to me as a runner. I know not everybody's a runner, but it seems there's a new study every month that comes out of just the importance of getting enough steps. We as Americans just aren't moving enough. We're very stationary and it's literally killing us. And so I'd love to get your thoughts on that even if somebody's not a runner. I saw there a study in the Journal of American Medicine that getting around 8,000 steps per day leads to a 51% lower risk of death compared to getting 4,000. But the study I've studied, there's no upper limit. 8,000 isn't quite as good as 12,000 because people that hit that have a 65% lower risk of death, but people are just, I don't know. It, it just seems like that is lost on people. What, what do you say to kind of encourage people to get their steps? Uh, where do they get started if you're just not used to moving around that much?
0: I think the whole idea behind a certain number of steps is that movement is medicine. Sitting is killing people. It's a sitting disease. We're getting lazy and lazier as a population. So being able to just move throughout the day, it doesn't necessarily have to be walking because think about it. There's all those stats about strength training, how strength training can increase your longevity and your quality of life and decrease your risk for disease. But you're not necessarily getting a ton of steps in when you're strength training compared to if you're walking. So I think it's finding what works best for you and starting out slow and then slowly building it into your weekly routine. So if you enjoy walking, great. I think everyone should be walking every single day because there's also so many benefits to getting outside. But you can also strength train. You can also do all these other things like cycling. You're not going to get a ton of steps when you're cycling, but it's still really good for you. So finding different ways to move that you actually enjoy, that you can actually stick with If you don't like running, don't run. (laughs) Don't force yourself to run, but also start out with these activities very slow. So you're not just going into it full force and being like, oh, I don't like it because you're gasping for air and maybe you're not that good at it. So it's starting out slow. Give it a chance. Do you like it? Do you want to try something else? And then what can you actually stick with in the long term?
1: This is fascinating. So, movement as medicine, I love that. If you're not used to getting a lot of movement, How many steps should you get in a day or how many, if you're cycling, how many sessions per week? Like, where do you generally coach people to start?
0: I would say start at three days a week. Three days a week is going to be a good starting point. And again, I cannot emphasize to just start really slow, really slow with like in terms of resistance, really slow in terms of your pace, if you're running or your speed, if you're biking, if you're lifting weights, start by lifting lower weights to body weight to start with. And in terms of your walking, so if you can start with five to 10 minute walk in the morning right before you start work, and then maybe after work, your strength training, your biking, your running 30 minutes, three times a week.
1: Okay, that's really good. And I know from listening to your podcast, watching some of your videos, you're a little counterintuitive, at least to me, I just like to run and I like to go all in. And so If it were me, I'm like, let's go seven days a week. Let's just go as far as we can. Let's go as fast as we can. And it's like, well, that's not sustainable. I totally get it. But something you said, I I really want to dig deeper on because I heard you talking about to go fast, you go slow. Now, I've heard this phrase in creative work, right? You slow down to make sure you're being intentional with your work and creative. But you're saying that literally, if you want to go faster, in your running to slow down. And you talk about like zone two training. First of all, explain what zone two is and explain how running much slower than you want to helps you go faster. This is fascinating.
0: Yeah, it really is. And it is true for a lot of things in life. You can't just rush through something and expect excellent results. Like you have to build a foundation first. And that's where the slowing down comes in. Zone two training basically means you're going at this aerobic base, you're building your endurance at 60 to 70% of your heart rate max. So if you're running, if I'm comparing my race pace to my heart rate zone two, it's about two to three minutes slower into my zone two training than it is into my race pace. So that's where it comes down slowing down and all of the benefits of zone two training are happening at that cellular level, you're building your aerobic base, and then you're conserving your energy. So when it's time for you to speed up, when it's time for you to race or just do a speed interval or something like that, you're able to go a lot faster because you're not exhausting all your energy systems. Every single workout, your, every single workout shouldn't be the hardest workout you've ever done. Every single workout shouldn't be your heart rate up, you know, 170 beats per minute which mine definitely was last year. So that's why it really has helped to slow down for majority of your workouts, majority of your runs, so you can speed up. That makes sense.
1: now there is something to be said. You hear this term, build your aerobic capacity, how does that square away with, if you're trying to build capacity, don't you need to overextend it?
0: Yep, you definitely do. And that's where the 80-20 rule comes in. So 80% of your runs are slow, or I shouldn't use the word slow, but it's all perspective, but in that heart rate zone to training, and then 20% of your runs, you're pushing it. So that's how you're able to build your aerobic base, build your aerobic capacity. So then the 20% of the time you can actually push it.
1: If somebody's training for their first, say, 5K versus first marathon, what kind of time period do you generally recommend they do the 80-20 running to really max out?
0: If it's your very first time doing zone two training, I would give it six months. I would give it a long time because, again, everything's happening on a cellular level. So, you know, just take patience and it takes consistency. But even if you're not seeing it day to day, month after month, you're going to start seeing that maybe with your first run, if you're training in zone two, your pace is, let's say 13 minute mile. And then as you get used to training in zone two, all of a sudden the next month, you're like, oh, I'm at a 12 minute mile and I'm still at zone two. So your pace is dropping slowly as you're able to stay in zone two. And that means you're just building your aerobic base. Now, heat and humidity are going to play a role in that, but If you continue to train, I would say a solid two to three months of heart rate zone two training, build your aerobic base, and then another two to three months training for that 5K, especially if it's your first one, then I think you'd be good to go. But always build your base before you start any training plan.
1: Build your base. That's good advice. And I do have a lot of friends. They used to run, but they did have an injury. And assuming they've recovered from that injury, they've seen a physical therapist, they've gotten the support they need. How soon after an injury or they're afraid of re-injuring what kind of advice do you give to them
0: i've heard this a lot especially with my one-on-one clients like i'm back to running but i'm just in my head like when is that injury going to come back but what i advise is just distract your brain you know i build my one-on-one clients up slowly and the injury is not just going to randomly come back as severe and as sharp as it was so progressing slowly. So like after a client or runner is done rehabbing, they want to get back into running. I'm not like, go run three miles. Tell me how it is. We're doing return to run tests. We're doing walking for a prolonged period of time, making sure pain-free daily activities and slowly progressing them with a walk jog and then it's a very controlled ratio of walking to jogging and then progressing based on their symptoms, based on how they're doing. And then in addition to that return to run, they're also strength training. They've transitioned from rehab to strength training. They're still working on those weaknesses. They're not as severe as they were when they were injured, but they're still working on weaknesses and they're not just kind of throwing it out the window like, well, I'm done rehabbing, so I'm good to go.
1: That. Sounds reasonable. And okay, so I have become fascinated with shoes. I've become that guy. And I started running in Brooks, and then I found On Clouds. And then I read Born to Run. And for those unfamiliar, they really talk about barefoot running in there and barefoot running shoes and minimal shoes. And so I've drank the Kool-Aid. So right now running in Zeros is a particular brand. There's also Ultras and different that are just flat, less cushioning. And the logic makes sense to me, but I want to ask you, somebody that is actually knowledgeable about this and a physical therapist, with regard to building the muscles in your feet, would you recommend people run in minimal running shoes or even walk in shoes that have minimal cushioning and support?
0: I get asked my opinion on this all the time and just know that this is my opinion and everyone's entitled to it, but Born to Run is a great book but it's an older book and research has really, really evolved. I mean, let's face it. The average American is not born to run. We're obese. We're more obese than ever. We're used to very cushioned shoes. That's because we're not running, right? (laughs) (laughs) And we're used to these shoes that are getting higher and higher in terms of the cushion. I mean, if you look in a running store, they're just clunkier. So we're not necessarily as born to run as we were in the 80s. So, research is actually coming out and it's always evolving. Research is basically saying that our foot is very used and it's adapted to these cushioned shoes. And if we go from, you know, Brooks, a 12 millimeter drop shoe that's very cushioned to all of a sudden running in a zero drop, it's not going to feel too great. And your calf is going to be burning as well because you're using your Achilles more. So, if you're going to go to zero drop because Maybe you want to try zero drop or you want to get rid of injuries, then you should do it slowly because we're just very used to an eight millimeter shoe heel drop that has a heel drop, eight millimeter or 12 millimeter heel drop. You shouldn't just transition quickly into a zero drop or barefoot shoes. But on the flip side, research is also saying that when you run in barefoot shoes, not necessarily like ultras because ultras are cushioned. But more so like Vivo barefoots or the minimalist shoe. Our stride changes a lot. We're using different muscles, but not necessarily in a way that's good for our running economy because basically research is saying that we are going to be decelerating and using more muscles to decelerate to stabilize in a minimalist shoe or barefoot shoe compared to a cushioned shoe. And again, that's because we're just used to it. So if you're used to walking around your house barefoot and like, always being barefoot, you might be fine with it. But at the end of the day, you just have to do what's best for you. The heel drop of your shoe is not necessarily the reason that you're injured, but you should consider the heel drop when you're recovering from an injury.
1: And that makes sense. And so maybe just do your homework and learn about the different benefits of the different shoes and work your way down over time. So would you advocate people do that? And also to Try walking around more often barefoot if you're not used to that, just so that the muscles in your feet get exercised. They're not always walking around on pillows.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I love hokas. I wear them for my long run, but I also walk around barefoot. All the time in my house throughout the entire day and I strength train in barefoot shoes and I walk around the neighborhood in barefoot shoes. So you don't also want to be strength training in very cushioned shoes either. You want ideally zero drop minimalist shoe for strength training. So think the Vivo barefoots are great or if you're just at home you can just strength train in no shoes and just take your socks off so your feet can actually touch the ground. But you're gonna Work on that foot stability, that ankle stability in a way that you're not in that cushioned shoe.
1: Yeah. And I just had an idea that hasn't occurred to me before. I think people think in terms of having shoes for different dress occasions, like you have dress shoes for particular outfits or for formal occasions, you have shoes and ladies may have high heels or, or whatever the case may be. We're talking function and fitness here. I don't think many people, at least when they're beginning the journey, think that like they should have different shoes for different purposes. You have like your gym shoes, an all-purpose gym shoe. But there is some wisdom there in using the right tool for the job. So I heard you say, you know, walking around in minimalist shoes to build that base, the muscles in your feet. But then when you're training, you have a training shoe or when you're weightlifting or strength training, you're wearing a shoe that is made for that job.
0: And also there's a lot of research around having a shoe with a wide toe box. So like ultras have a wide toe box. And I know I said, don't blame the shoe for the injury, but the only exception I will say is plantar fasciitis because, you know, a lot of ladies will shove their toes into high heels and their toes are scrunched. They can't use that big toe like they should, and a lot of the pressure then goes to where the plantar fascia inserts on the calcaneus, causing inflammation like plantar fasciitis. So you want to make sure your toes can spread out. You want to make sure your toes have room to breathe, have room to move, so you can use them like you should in the gait cycle or during a dynamic movement. So definitely paying attention to not only what you're wearing when you're running, but also what are you wearing on a day-to-day basis.
1: Since working with runners, you've become a runner yourself. How many days a week do you run versus strength train?
0: Right now I'm in training for the Richmond Marathon in November. It's a couple of months away, but I'm running four days a week, cross training one, strength training twice and a rest day once. So basically it looks like four days of running, I'm doubling up cycling and strength training one day, and then the other day is strength training and a rest day. And that is just because I'm in training right now. If I wasn't in training after the race, I'll probably go back to three days a week of strength training, maybe three to four days of running, and then one day of cross training and kind of increase that amount of strength training.
1: It really depends on what you're optimizing for. How much time do you take off between races or training events?
0: After the marathon, I'll take off three weeks and it lines up. I think it's like two weekends before Thanksgiving. So it's a good time to take off anyways. So I'll take off three weeks and then slowly get back into running. I'll probably take off two weeks and then start to introduce strength training back in. Nothing too crazy, but definitely three weeks for running. And then after the half marathon, I'll take off two weeks from running.
1: What do you do for strength training?
0: I write my own program, which is helpful, but I basically, I guess to organize it, I break it down into four different parts. So I work on mobility. I work on stability of the hips and ankles and core. I work on strength, which is like the powerhouse muscles that you use when you're running, think like quads, hamstrings, glutes, calves. And then I work on power, which is like the plyometrics or the explosive movement. So I include all four of those in my strength training. And that also includes training in different planes, training unilaterally and
1: bilaterally. Do you feel like the folks that you're coaching, does that work for most people or do people have a particular area that they like to focus on?
0: Everyone loves to work on quads and glutes, but majority of the time that looks like squats, lunges, deadlifts, and then like for upper body, it might look like pushups. So everything's in one plane and that's not realistic or even ideal for running because even though running you're running forward there's still rotation going on in the spine and in the pelvis so you want to make sure that you're training in these different planes you're rotating you're working on anti rotation so a lot of the time runners will strength train in a pretty general workout that's probably also made for everyone else which is fine there's nothing wrong with it it's still better than nothing but if you're injury prone I hate to use that word but if you're continuing to get injured year after year, we probably need to switch something up with your strength program.
1: Yeah, I read the book called 80-20 Running. And in the book, they tell a story that I find fascinating that I don't think many people know. So it's a pretty well known that Kenyans win most of our marathons these days. And so I think people just assume Kenyans are naturally built to run and be fast. And it's like, well, that actually hasn't always been the case until about the 90s. And what they describe in the book is that In, I believe, the 70s, their missionaries went to Kenya and they built schools, but the schools were spread out. And so kids had to get used to running, not at full speed, as you mentioned, zone two. So a good pace, but not maxing out because they had to run long distances to and from school, 12 and 15 miles. And they did that every day for their entire childhood. And you take a population of kids doing that, and a certain number are going to be naturally more athletic and aerobic, and they're going to be fast. But they got the fastest in the world because of their putting in the reps, right? They just ran every day at long distances. And so it occurs to me, then once those kids grew up in about the 90s, they started winning all the marathons. And I'm like, well, that makes perfect sense. It's kind of like they weren't born genetically predisposed to be the fastest people in the world. It's their environment and it's what they train for. How cool is that? Like The the human body is so wonderful and amazing that you can develop a skill like that if you just put in the miles, literally.
0: Yep, exactly. And like that high volume of having that aerobic base set them up so well for success. Yes. And so there are all (laughs) kinds
1: of metrics. I have a Garmin watch and aura ring, and there's all kinds of things you can track. Right now, it's really trendy looking at VO2 max to improve your fitness. One, I wondered what you think of that. And two, if you actually help people to increase their VO2 max, which I'd love for you to explain what VO2 max is and do you coach people on how to improve it?
0: VO2 max is basically how is your body consuming the oxygen and using the oxygen. So I don't coach people on VO2 max because... When I was in PT school, when we had our VO2 Max day, and even in undergrad, we had our VO2 Max day, we were in this huge lab. It was a huge event to test your VO2 Max you and take your blood pressure, take your oxygen, and put your heart rate at these different paces. And it was like a 30 minute test. And then all of a sudden, Garmin's just going to put something on your <laughs> wrist and say, This is your VO2 Max. Right. So I just don't know how accurate it is. I guess I'm just skeptical of it. But again, like your heart rate might not be super accurate, but you also can take your heart rate at your wrist. You know, usually if someone's heart rate is training in a good aerobic base and their breathing's good and they've been doing it for a while and they've strength training and they have great running form, their VO2 max will be exactly, it's just going to be like a product of what they've been training with.
1: What do you look at most? What metrics do you measure?
0: My heart rate i'm like really hardcore paying attention to my heart rate because i had back up i had covid last summer and that wrecked my endurance and even though i didn't have you know all the symptoms and all that when i got back into running my heart rate was like 175 wow. for an easy run and then i kind of ignored it because i wasn't looking at my heart rate then i wasn't training in zone two i didn't even really care about zone two, to be honest back then and then i ran a 10 k, and i was like it's almost like it was very human that day but i could feel my heart beating out of my chest and i was kind of wondering like okay i don't know if i can do this for you know an hour or however long it would take me to run it so i was like i got to do something about this because if i want to run a marathon this year i'm not going to be able to run with that feeling you know that's asking for something bad to, to happen so that's when i read the eighty twenty 20 running, really started researching it and learning about it more on like that cellular level of what the heck is happening. And it really opened up a new world for me. And I'm, I was like going through it and I was like, this is so boring. I mean, I'm running like way slower than I ever thought I would. But my pace has decreased by like two minutes in just two months, I guess. Actually, it's been wow. probably like two and a half months. My speed has increased by a minute during my speed intervals, which is also crazy. Yeah. And I have no injuries, which I'm also a PT, but I also, things pop up. You're still human. No, it is running. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. How's your heart? How's your heart
1: rate now? Are you still maxing out at 175?
0: No, I'm not, which is, well, For speed intervals, yes, but that's okay when it's that time. But my heart rate is around like 135 for my easy runs and it's sitting about two minutes slower than a marathon pace.
1: That again is counterintuitive if you're trying to take it easy so your heart rate doesn't go too high, but you're saying, you know, get into a training program because that will help bring it down.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I will say, like, it's going to be frustrating in the beginning, especially if you had COVID, especially if, you know, it's hot and humid here. So it's going to be frustrating in the beginning, but I would say just do what you can. Don't obsess over zone two, but try to get close to zone two because especially in the heat and humidity, you don't want to be like, I don't even enjoy this. You know, I'm just doing this. So it helps, but I don't really enjoy my running. I kind of dread it. That's not really the point of it. So maybe try it on a treadmill once a week or try it when you're cycling or something like that, but just definitely take it slow and definitely test your patience.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. And again, zone two is about what do you say? 60% of your max heart rate? Yeah, And it doesn't take much to get there, right? Above just your normal walking pace, that'll happen. I love this. This is very helpful. So as we kind of wind down, I'll put a link to your YouTube in the show notes for anybody that wants to check out. You've got all kinds of stretches and injury prevention advice on the YouTube. What would you say is the most common injury that you treat now?
0: recently itv syndrome i would say that or plantar fasciitis it changes with the seasons okay so maybe in a month it's going to be more shin splints but i've definitely been getting a rise in shin splints and i think it all depends on like when are the common races that people are running and are they just starting their training plan and are they progressing and then it's like the month before you have chicago new york city and like all these other races and October, November. So probably beginning of October, like everything's going to flood in.
1: (laughs) You said it earlier, the movement is medicine. And of course, you completely want to avoid an injury. You can stay stationary. You can just (laughs) not move. However, the long-term effects that are devastating. (laughs) And so it is about balance. And as you said, you kind of take things slow and progressively improve your skill over time and long distances, not too much too soon. And the same thing, whether it's with shoes or with whatever your training is, just don't stop moving.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Talk to anyone who's been strength training or running for a while. Things take time before you see progress. You can see a little bit of progress maybe every month, and that is going to stack up into long-term progress. So keep going and then pay attention and celebrate those small victories because they're going to add up into bigger victories down the road. And then A year later from now, you can say, Oh my gosh, that's where I was a year ago, and this is where I am today. Like looking back on what you've been able to accomplish.
1: I love it. That's a great place to end because I think it's not just book (laughs) knowledge. Like you speak from experience. That's amazing. (laughs) So thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and lived experience with us. Hopefully, we'll encourage and inspire more people to get moving and start where you're at and build slowly over time. Dr. Lisa, thanks so much for being here today on the next Simple Step podcast.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much for having me.
1: You're welcome.